Let's go to cancer again, because it's, you know, they're, what, three or four biggest killers of human beings. Cancer is one of the, one of those, you know, heart disease, probably the other big one in the first world anyway, and it's infections in the third world. And cancer is a genetic disease. We all know that now. It's caused by some mutation happens in a cell. And now that cell starts to grow and won't stop. That's basically it. And there's many, many different mutations that can make a cell go haywire. We've already seen a lot of them. So what can we do? Is there something we can do with sequencing that can help us understand that better and treat that better? You know, so we certainly want to catalog all the mutations that are you know, making it go haywire. So sequencing tumors is a way to do that. That's Dr. Steven Salzberg, Johns Hopkins University researcher and director of the Center for Computational Biology at Hopkins. Hi, and welcome to Conversations with Scientists. I'm Vivian Marks. You'll hear more about and from Dr. Salzberg in this episode that is about genomics, about long-read sequencing, about human biology and human diversity, about funding, technology choice, about complete and incomplete genomes, about jobs in bioinformatics. When something is incomplete, it just keeps tugging at you with a question, when will you finish this? It's true for many kinds of tasks and puzzles, including ones in science, in genomics in particular. Sequencing and assembly are a way to see the information a genome holds, and this becomes shareable information too. And you can sequence many genomes and compare them. For example, as Steven Salzberg just mentioned, you can sequence the genomes in tumors to better understand why they act so treacherously. It's hard to sequence and assemble genomes to completion. Long-read sequencing helps with this, and that is the Nature Methods Method of the Year for 2022. The fact that long-read sequencing exists doesn't mean all genomes are now sequenced to completion, and sometimes they don't have to be complete. But for some questions, it's really important to have genomes to analyze that do not have gaps. I should add, researchers need to sequence and assemble. See Titus Brown, he's now at University of California, Davis, and was then at Michigan State University in East Lansing when he explained assembly this way to me for an article in Nature. He said, imagine that a thousand copies of Charles Dickens' novel, A Tale of Two Cities, have been shredded in a wood chipper. Your job is to put them back together into a single book. Side note here, I was afraid my editors would not like this at all. Many of them are British, and the idea of sending Dickens novels into a wood chipper might seem awful to them. So I buried this pretty deep in my story. But the editors actually liked it and asked me to put it right at the beginning. That was a nice surprise. The link to the story is in the transcript of this podcast. So that's the assembly challenge explained with Dickens and wood chippers. Sequence and then assemble so that the sequence represents the real thing as closely as possible. The human reference genome, which labs around the world use for analysis in basic research or in medicine, is called GRCH38. That stands for Genome Reference Consortium Human Build 38. GRCH38 came together over 20 years. The challenge has been that the assembled sequence has many errors in it, for example, gaps. The T2T Consortium, and that stands for Telomere to Telomere Consortium, has worked on these gaps and succeeded, except that the sequence they completed is from a certain kind of cell that is mainly homozygous. The two sets of chromosomes in human cells are not identical like this one, typically. But this cell made things easier for assembly and for attacking gaps. 
As part of my reporting on long-read sequencing, I thought I would ask Stephen Salzberg about his views and get his perspective on sequencing and assembly. He runs a computational biology lab that is part of the larger Center for Computational Biology at Hopkins. He directs that center. In his lab, he and his team work on assembly and ways to analyze DNA computationally. He has a blog and a column on Forbes.com. Earlier in his career, he headed bioinformatics at Tiger, the Institute for Genomic Research, run by J. Craig Venter. It was part of the venture to determine the sequence of the human genome. There were disagreements about how the project was run, and Craig Venter set out, and with his scientists, including Steven Salzberg, to sequence the human genome separately. This ended up as a public-private race to sequence and assemble the human genome. The publicly funded International Human Genome Sequencing Consortium published its sequenced and assembled human genome sequence in Nature. At the same time, the TIGER team, which was privately funded, published in Science. That was in 2001. Updates have continued since then to the human genome reference, and gaps keep getting closed. But one issue with the existing human genome reference is that it's not diverse. It's not a representation of the diversity of humans on the planet. But that is something that the Human Pangenome Reference Consortium is taking on. Steven Salzberg is part of this consortium and a co-author on a more recent Nature paper from this consortium, and that paper is about assembly and reference genomes. Yeah, there's a paper led by Eric Jarvis that I'm on. It's on semi-automated assembly of high-quality diploid human reference genomes. In sequencing, technology has changed plenty over the years, and the changes are making new kinds of projects possible. At first, there was short-read sequencing, then long-read sequencing emerged. Very first was Sanger sequencing, which was accurate but time-consuming. Then came high-throughput sequencing with short reads with Selexa machines. Selexa was bought by Illumina, a sequencing company known mainly for its short-read technology. And then came long-read sequencing, which a number of instruments can do. One of the companies with such an instrument is Oxford Nanopore Technologies, often nicknamed Nanopore. And another is Specific Biosciences, often nicknamed PacBio. And there are other companies with instruments that do long-read sequencing. Even Illumina is offering a kind of long-read sequencing. Steven Salzberg is happy about the evolution toward long-read sequencing. I mean, I've been excited about it for a number of years now. Um, it, you know, we went from, from having 800 base pair reads to having 25 base pair reads in 2007. And initially, nobody even thought of using that for assembly. And then it was so much cheaper that, you know, once the reads got to be a little over 50 bases, people started trying to assemble genomes from them. And there were assemblies published uh, with, you know, 55 base pair reads, 75 base pair reads. They were terrible assemblies, but they were much, much cheaper than Sanger sequencing. Um, this was the yeah. early, these were the uh, the early machines. Was this Alexa or was yeah. this... Yeah, and the the first selection machine was 25 bases. Nobody was using that for assembly. Um, They were up at 35 bases within about a year, and then they got to 50 another year later. And um, the first human genome sequenced and assembled from Illumina, I think, was used 54 base pair reads, I think is what their length was. Um, And it was very, very fragmented, of course, and God knows how many, you know, hundreds of thousands of pieces. But uh, it, it wasn't clear that that technology was going to ever get very long reads. And here we are, you know, over 10 years later, and it still doesn't have very long reads because there's sort of an inherent limitation in the technology and the way it works. 
So, you know, because you're sequencing this little tiny fragment that you amplified in place and you don't have that many molecules there. So um, that's the limitation there. And, and it seems like, you know, they can go to a few hundred base pairs at most. And then the PacBio came out and then Nanopore came out and they don't really have this length limit, especially Nanopore. You know, they can do, they have reads of uh, more than a million bases now and then can be sequenced with lower accuracy. And starting in, I don't remember what year, but um, good six or eight years ago, using the earlier Nanopore reads, or maybe it was PacBio, I don't even remember, um, Adam Philippi and his group started doing complete assemblies of bacteria with no gaps without having to do any sort of gap filling, you know, by in a lab, just totally computational. And that was a big step forward. I so saw like, you know, I, I thought, because we had never been able to do even that. So around, I don't know, let's say 2015, 2016, we're finally able to do a bacterial genome and get it com completely assembled just from the raw shotgun data. Um, but we were still a long way from eukaryotes because of the large, these large repetitive regions, mostly centromeres. Centromeres are regions in the genome. Karen Miga at the University of California, Santa Cruz, for example, has long studied these regions, and she co-leads the T2T consortium. When you sequence, when you sequence with short reads, it's hard to fit the puzzle pieces together with a stretch of repeated DNA like the ones you find at the centromeres, which is why long reads are helpful. The key parameter that you care about in long reads in, in doing assembly, and this is important for all the trees that we're doing. So we have these massive tree genomes that are uh, sometimes upwards of 30 gigabases, you know, 10 times the size of human. And they're some of them are like 80% repeats. They're just filled with repeats. That's what they, there's not like they have more genes. They don't, they just have a lot more repetitive DNA in them. But the repeat elements aren't that big. They're not that big. Most repeat elements are in the two to 5,000 base pair range, usually towards the shorter end of that. And so as long as your individual reads are longer than that, hopefully, you know, a good bit longer than that, then you can place all of those repeats in the right place. So once you get above, you know, once you have 10,000 base pair reads, which we have, you can span almost everything in a genome with the exception of the centromeres and the telomeres. So you do have a few special, but only a few special regions that, that still remain as gaps. And the T to T consortium to finish the human genome, they, didn't get read lengths that span the centromeres because the centromeres are millions of base pairs long, but there's a just enough variation in the centromeres. They're not all, all the repeats aren't identical, but they're very, very close to identical. Mm -hmm. So with really long reads that were accurate enough, that's why the hi-fi reads were necessary. You can tease apart the centromeres and assemble them. We hope correctly. I mean, we're done. So we hope it's correct. And that's still very challenging to do. As a computational biologist, Steven Salzberg works on many types of genomes, such as tree genomes. He has a project in the works on the white bark pine with David Neal. And that's another podcast I still have in the making, one with David Neal. He is retired from UC Davis, but he's now the in charge of the white bark pine ecosystem foundation, which is trying to get um, raise funding to sequence the white bark pine, which is a high altitude pine that's endangered or Nearly in danger. Hoping it'll be listed as endangered soon. It'll help them raise the money. So, and as soon as he can raise the money, then I'm going to be working with him to assemble it. Uh, sorry, I'm, I misspoke. We're already assembling white bark pine. 
we don't have all the money we need to do all the steps. So we've already got some of the money and we're already well underway with that. We are also sequencing um, bristlecone pine. Doing all these on like a shoestring budget though. Money. Money matters in science and sequencing and assembly. There are large scale projects that garner large grants and individual labs do more targeted projects like the ones Steven Salzberg just mentioned on tree genomes. So one has to choose technology based on resources. For tree genomes, Steven Salzberg and his colleagues combine Illumina sequencing with Oxford nanopore technology sequencing. I went to Illumina for all of them because these are all very, very large genomes in the 25 to 30 gigabase range. And we don't have that much funding. And David's trying to raise the money mostly from private sources. Um, you know, so he gets, you know, small amounts here and there. And um, and that's not, you know, that's, we're not these wealthy funded places like the NIH or NHGRI funded groups. So um, anyway, we need long reads to span most of those repeats because there's so many of them and they're long. And we get pretty good assemblies out of these from these massive genomes. We also are doing uh, this high C technology at the end to make them even better with a company called Dovetail. That's part of our recipe too. It takes a combination of technologies and methods to sequence and assemble these genomes. I hear in my interviews that it would be great if labs had one box, just one box to go to for everything related to sequencing. Here's Steven Salzberg on that aspect, the one box idea. Well, I mean, ultimately, um, you know, may, maybe in, in decades to come, but we're not seeing anything around the corner like that. I think the, I work a lot on the human genome and human genetics too, and human genomics, but human work is almost, it almost should be in its own category because in every way, all the resources are so much vaster. So a cancer person, they, they may not appreciate it, but compared to somebody who's trying to sequence a tree, where you you have to struggle to justify why it's worth doing at all. And then you get like a little grant. Um, with cancer, we're basically um, looking at sequencing the whole genome from an individual tissue sample from an individual patient. I mean, and there's funding to do that. There's resources to do that because we're human. So we want to put our money into that kind of work. What we actually want to get out of sequencing has changed dramatically over the past 20 years. It's changed over the past 10 years. So if you have a cancer sample, do you want to do, first of all, do you want to sequence the DNA or RNA? A lot of people do RNA sequencing. Um, and sometimes you do both. If you have enough money, you do both. And with DNA, you're looking for mutations in the DNA itself. And with RNA, you're looking for changes in gene expression. And in each case that are somehow abnormal and you want to compare it to some sort of normal um, signature. Um, but, you know, some years ago, we would just be looking at SNPs and running SNP chips. But and people still do that. There are these SNP chips with millions of SNPs. And that's not sequencing as that not, not really sequencing, but it's it's cheap. And you you're interrogating the genome at several million locations for SNPs that are kind of standardized. So we know what they are. And some of them are markers for certain diseases or other traits. I don't do SNP analysis, but with with anything other than humans, you don't, you don't, you can't really contemplate doing that, that kind of detailed sequencing. Much funding these days is going into population scale sequencing to get, for example, reference genomes that reflect human diversity, which the current reference genome does not. Yeah, so my view on that is the 
I, I realize the NIH is pushing this pangenome idea. I, I think it's it's a little bit misguided, honestly. I think what we ought to do, and I'm doing some of this in my own lab, is we ought to be doing individual, more or less complete genomes from many different populations and building up a, a library of those. We've done two of them in my lab, one of an Ashkenazi Jew and then one of a Puerto Rican individual. We've both published. And and we're, you know, they're genomes that are basically uh, better quality than the human reference genome is now. And they're annotated and you could use them right now as a research tool. And I think there should be hundreds, if not thousands of those. The pan genome is, is a different idea. It's like, let's take all the different people's genomes, different population genomes, and let's combine them into one giant data structure, which is not yet agreed upon. Nobody really knows what it's going to look like. And then we can do all our analysis on that. I, I don't think that's the best solution. I honestly don't think it's ever going to happen. One issue with the concept of a pan-genome is how to analyze these data and how to democratize that genome graph analysis so that analysis can be widely done, for example, at medical centers, large and small, as well as basic research labs. It's technically very challenging, and I know why people are interested in that. And I've worked a little bit on graph genomes too, but it's not a good solution. It's just it's just not. It, it raises additional technical problems. It also kind of ignores the fact that we have a vast amount of infrastructure already invested in analyzing things on one genome. We have all kinds of software. We have you know, laboratory-based kits, all based on the human reference genome. Adding other reference genomes from different populations would be pretty straightforward. Adding a thing that doesn't look like that at all, that requires all kinds of new algorithms, new software that doesn't exist. And I don't see people uh, creating or using such stuff. In the research world, maybe, but in the clinical world, no. They're very reluctant. They're, they're not even, many, many clinical sites are still using what's called GRCH37 or HG19, the old version of the human genome, which was updated in 2013 to the current version. And they're still, because of inertia, you know, they don't want to switch all their software. So they're not, they haven't even updated to the new newer genome assembly. Now, now we're hoping they'll all update to the CHM13 genome, which is so much better. And, um, and I hope they will, but I think that's going to take years just to update to that. And that's a single genome linear representation. To ask them to go to something they don't even understand where the community hasn't even agreed on what the representation is, it's not going to happen. I think it's just not going to happen. Sequencing and assembly is not just done for one lab or group, but for others to use these data too. In the clinical world, when a software analysis pipeline has been set up, there is reluctance to change those pipelines. And this is the inertia Steven Salzberg just described. Pipelines can break, that can be time-consuming and expensive to fix. So these clinical sites stick to a previous version of the assembled human genome. And they would have to perhaps in some cases be made aware of the fact that there is a finished human genome. Are you aware of the fact there's now a finished human genome? Would you like to switch to that? What would it take to get you to switch to that? That's not a big, that's not a big change. And yet it is. There's a lot of things that are all kind of tied into GRCH38, the current reference, despite its flaws, its shortcomings. With the real-world application of sequencing that is widespread across big labs, small labs, big hospital centers, and smaller ones, it's not just about the technology, but about software, people, patients, and of course, money. 
The assembled human genome, CHM, from the telomere to telomere consortium is not deployed the way the human genome is, but sequence and assembly have been completed, as the name indicates, from telomere to telomere, from one end of chromosomes to another, for the entire human genome. It's not a true diploid genome, but maybe for most questions that does not matter so very much. Here's Steven Salzberg. There's a lot of focus in the technical world that I live in on let's assemble things and make a diploid assembly. Some of these papers are diploid assemblies, meaning we assemble two copies of each chromosome. And, you know, just from a purely technical point of view, that's kind of interesting and challenging. And, and that is a better representation of the bi biological reality than what we usually produce, which is a kind of, a, you know, a mosaic of the two chromosomes kind of mashed together, right? But for humans, we're a pretty inbred species. And so our chromosomes are all really, really, really similar. And so it doesn't really matter if you mash the two together or not, except for it's very, I, I can't actually give you a good example because I don't know of one where having a diploid assembly is gonna let you solve a problem that you couldn't solve already. There are some gene loci where there is a lot of variation between people. One of them is the HLA locus, the human leukocyte antigen superlocus, also called the major histocompatibility complex. It's a region with some genes that matter for immune system function. It's important when, for example, considering if one person is a good match for an organ transplant to another person. So the HLA locus is incredibly complicated. And we already have a lot of trouble doing genotyping for that. Um, I don't see a diploid assembly as, as a solution to, to one locus. I mean, you can work on that locus and do something with that locus that might be, you know, if you're interested in HLA typing, then okay. Maybe you want to separate the haplotypes just for that. But that's just one small piece of a very large genome. So maybe, you know, maybe there is something there, but it's, you kind of have to dig hard, dig deep to find justification for putting a lot of effort into diploid assembly. It's, I, I think a lot of this comes from the funders and from NHGRI, which NHGRI is, is, um, and uh, people say I shouldn't bite the hand that feeds me, but because I have funding from them, but they um, like to come up with initiatives that they come up with, they think of. Uh, they have advisors, but who knows how much the advisors are involved. And then they say, we're giving out money for this. And that's what you got to do. And so, you know, they want to have pan-genome work done. They want to have diploid assemblies made. So um, so that's getting funded. And you don't have to justify it, really, if the funder says, no, that's what we're giving out money for. <laughs> if you write an R01, not to any particular initiative, then you have to explain, like, why is that valuable? So I think that they are. Um, putting too much money into this sort of top-down driven initiatives that they think up and they really should just let us propose things and let the peer review process sort it out. Although, you know, as flawed as that is, it's still better. The large grants from the National Institutes of Health, National Human Genome Research Institute, NIH, NHGRI, set the stage for much about what happens in genomics, at least in the United States. They do have these very big grants out of NHGRI that, and and those are things where they write the you know call for proposals and they define what's what it's going to be. So they are somehow keen on on uh, graft genomes and diploid genomes right now, and so a lot of people are saying how great this is. But I'm not one of those. Um, I think some people saying it's great, they know full well that it's not really that substantial. But it's you know it's the it's the flavor of the month. Diploid assembly again, if you had a even a diploid assembly. 
we don't have tools to work with those. So I don't think they're going to be of much use for quite a few years. I think that the what's what's missing from the NHGRI perspective at the moment about these different technical um, directions is is a, a a real sense of well why are you doing this where's the tell me the direct connection to human health without waving your hands too much now sequencing a human genome you don't i mean you can argue as some people have like it hasn't really delivered all the things that were promised but the fact is that we do have a lot of things that it has delivered on we you know we now can track down genetic mutations very quickly that we had no idea about before we now, we at least know what all the genes are we know a lot more about genetic causes of cancer and many other disorders. Some scientists have told me that having the human genome reference helps to study aspects such as changes to the genome that aren't changes to the gene sequence. Those are epigenetic changes such as methylation, and they can play a role in health and disease too. Yeah, so you can argue there are people who are looking at methylation, how that's related to, to various diseases. I. I think that the idea of having a, a, a more accurate assembly and a, or a diploid assembly or a pangenome assembly is being driven by some sort of technical interest, not by, oh, if only we had that, then we could figure out this problem. It's, it's, it's not that you always have to work that way. It's fine. I'm, I'm, I've done lots of basic research in my career, and I think we should fund that. I think basic research is great. But when you're talking about putting so much money, so many resources into doing human sequencing, we should be thinking about like, okay, well, what is this supposed to do? Why, you know, what are, is there a particular disease we're trying to cure? Is there a particular class of disorders that we're looking at? What's it going to do? Even, you know, even if that's 10, 20 years out, why are we doing it? So I don't have, I have not seen a good answer when it comes to, um, graft genomes and diploid genomes. I think they're they're addressing a much narrower concern. You know, if one person had a grant to do it, I'd be, okay, fine, whatever. <laughs> um, there's lots of grants like that, but there's a lot of other questions out there that are probably more important and probably have a more immediate, um, a nearer term effect on, on human health. We return to talking about cancer research. Not every tumor in every patient is being sequenced, and not all sequencing works with low amounts of tissue, which is common in cancer, of course, biopsies have a certain size. And one big aspect about sequencing is a more social aspect, sharing. Here's Steven Salzberg. Let's go to cancer again, because it's, you know, there are, what, three or four biggest killers of human beings. Cancer is one of the, one of those, you know, heart disease, probably the other big one in the first world anyway, and it's infections in the third world. And cancer is a genetic disease. We all know that now. It's caused by some mutation happens in a cell. And now that cell starts to grow and won't stop. That's basically it. And there's many, many different mutations that can make a cell go haywire. We've already seen a lot of them. So what can we do? Is there something we can do with sequencing that can help us understand that better and treat that better, you know, so we certainly want to catalog all the mutations that are, you know, making it go haywire. So sequencing tumors is a way to do that. That's not addressed by, you know, diploid assembly or pangeme or anything like that. Um, but we are doing lots and lots of cancer sequencing. We're also doing RNA sequencing, which is another thing, because if you can't pinpoint the mutation, presumably the mutation is also making some gene go haywire. It may not be a mutation in that gene. It may be something that controls the gene, but if the gene suddenly is 
upregulated by a lot or downregulated by a lot and it's not supposed to be, then, okay, that's also important to know. And that might be a target for a drug. If that gene is going haywire, maybe that's a target. So, yeah, so we are doing things like that. Um, and the more sequencing we can do the, and the faster we can do it, the better. We don't sequence everybody's tumor. Um, we're far from that. So it'd be nice if we got to the point where that was just a routine assay that anybody who had cancer would have it sequenced. So we're not there yet. So we certainly have, you could think about what can we do to get there? Because we at least could get that information. And even though we don't know the genetic causes of all, all cancers, we're, we're working on that, but we're also the technology, getting the technology cheaper and faster uh, and maybe requiring less DNA uh, because tumors, you know, right, like your cancer doctor said, you can't just go back and get more tissue. You know, you, you have a limited amount. You get a biopsy and that's where you got your DNA from. But another thing which is not addressed, I think, adequately, but NIH could address this, this is a bit orthogonal, is that we ought to share all this data completely amongst every doctor, every basic scientist in the world. We would already probably have 100 times more data about every type of cancer if all of the sequencing that's already been done was publicly available or at least shared in some easy way, and it's just not. And that's a, it's kind of a sociological cultural problem. But, you know, if, if, if I had a tumor or you had a tumor and you went to your doctor and they sequenced it, they're not going to share that with anybody. And if someone asked for it, they say, oh, we're not allowed to because of HIPAA. Um, but if they asked the patient, would you mind? Uh, you know, I've known some people with cancer and their answer is almost always, of course, I wouldn't mind. Please share the data. This, this would help cure my cancer and cure, help other people. So all you have to do is ask. That's not part of the culture. We don't do that. It's all about, oh no, we can't share their data because they might be identified from it someday and then someone might like lose their health insurance or whatever hypothetical thing and it's illegal to share it. But you can share it if you ask. So so I think in, the, in addition to making it easier to get all this data, we haven't done much to try to share all this data. NIH is not helping. They're really not helping. Sharing and data sharing are a tough challenge with many layers of complication, and it applies to all kinds of sequencing, all kinds of science, really. But certainly short reads and long reads, just parts of a genome or whole genomes or many genomes. People share data or not, and they make choices also about the technology they use for their work. I asked Steven Salzberg about his technology choices for long-read sequencing. One company is Oxford Nanopore, also called ONT. I like the ONT mission of uh, sequencing becoming ubiquitous um, so that you're not just park rangers, but the elementary school kids in the park, you know, they could also have a sequencer and um, we'll probably be there one day. Um, that may be a long way away, but it, it is a little complicated. I, I don't do sequencing in my lab. It's still a little bit beyond. You have to have a wet lab to do it. Um, so one of my colleagues, Winston Temp, uh, does tons and tons of sequencing. So when I need something sequenced, I talk to him. Yeah, he's trained a couple of my students in how to do the sequencing. So I have some students who can do it. I can't myself, but they can. And we just walk over to his lab, which is across the street. Um, and uh, and we can do that. So it, But it's much easier than it used to be. But it's it's not quite, uh, you know, out in the field, anybody without knowing what they're doing um, can just take a little sample and somehow turn it into sequence data. If a lab wants to do long read sequencing, there are a growing number of tech options. The more established options are from PacBio and Oxford Nanopore. Steven Salzberg has a clear favorite. 
Well, with few exceptions, there's only one real choice, and that's Oxford Nanopore. I mean, it's it's not a close call. Oxford Nanopore has a device that costs a few hundred dollars, um, and I have one in my on my desk that I have to show to people. You know, they still have this this device, uh, which costs uh, you know five hundred bucks, and any lab can get it. You can take it out in the field, and it generates fair amount of data and it's very low cost and the reads are very long. So when they when they first appeared and well both PacBio and Nanopore both both were so error prone when they first appeared I was skeptical they would ever be adopted but they've steadily gotten better and now they're you know the error rates are still pretty high compared to Illumina they claim lower error rates but they're really still pretty high with exception of the HiFi but the raw sequencing reads you get out of a PacBio or a Nanopore is still pretty error prone, but they're much longer. So they're they're valuable for that. And for people who are just starting out or trying to do some long read sequencing, even if their lab has been around for a while, they can't go and buy a $700,000 PacBio machine. So if they're at a place which has one already and has a core facility and they can pay for sequencing that way, they might do a few jobs, you know, a few runs. And that's an option for them. If they're not at a place where that's an option, then they want if they want to have their own sequencer and run it themselves. There's no, there's no, there's currently only one technology on the market, uh, and that's Nanopore. And that's I don't know, you know, when someone will emerge to compete with them, but it's it's just not a competition really. I thought PacBio was um, once Nanopore got to be, uh, you know, had a, a longer read length and had similar accuracy, which has been several years now. I thought PacBio would would be basically gone pretty soon, um, and I, I don't know anything about their finances because I don't pay attention to that. But the um, in the sequencing arena, the HiFi technology is the only thing that kind of that they have that have to offer that's really better. And I don't know how much business they get from that. But if you really want to assemble a large genome um, accurately, then the HiFi technology is great. So it's good that we have it. It's a shame that they sued Nanopore and prevented them from using their read twice technology because that would probably make that, that might even supplant hi-fi technology. But anyway, most places, most people, most labs don't have the money to pay for that. It's a quite expensive technology, the hi-fi sequencing. So these NIH and NHGRI funded groups that are part of the Pangenome Consortium it seems that NHGRI is happy to spend tons of money on sequencing. So they, they're the they're kind of keeping that technology alive. If you ask me, in the in the uh, research world, that that's you got to have pretty big grants to afford that kind of thing. In my reporting, I always like asking about jobs. In this case, about job opportunities on the computational side of sequencing and assembling genomes. Well, I mean, it wouldn't be telling anything particularly new or interesting. There's academic jobs, so there's jobs doing like what I do. Some of my students want to do that, and um, I, I know a lot about that. So I, you know, sort of tell them, you know, where there might be um, jobs, where there might be good places to to go, um, and I know people in the and the academic side. On the commercial side, um, uh, I, I've had students go. Well, one just went to Illumina um, a year, year and a half ago. Um, uh, one went a few couple students went to a cancer sequencing startup. It's no longer a startup. It's too big for that called Personal Genome Diagnostics here in Baltimore, started by uh, 
some of the people in cancer here at, at Hopkins, um, namely Victor Velkalescu, who's a colleague of Bert Vogelstein's. So, but I don't know the commercial market uh, as well because I, I have my hands full keeping up with the academic world and the basic science side. My my experience so far is that there's lots of jobs. If you're trained in bioinformatics, the job market is still very, very good. Um, it's uh, it's kind of a seller's market. If you have the skills, there's a lot of places to go. Um, and it, there's lots, always lots of startups, it seems, even when the economy is slowed down, there seems to be a fair number of startups in this area. There's a lot of metagenomics companies starting up. There's a lot of interest in that. Um, I don't know how many of them are gonna, if any, are ever gonna succeed, but they, so it's the, the sequencing side of things is just a few technology companies, but the data analysis side of things, all of that involves bioinformatics. So like, for example, there's, there's companies that are doing microbiome analysis where, you know, they wanna figure out, is there some useful diagnostic, you know, capability we can get from that? They're, they're, um, there, I know some opportunities in government where they're looking at trying to do a better job at tracking down uh, foodborne outbreaks of infections. Um, that we use sequencing for that now. It's a totally different um, approach from what we ever did before, but we do. Um, we we've sequenced collectively. I mean, the community sequenced like over a hundred thousand different strains of Salmonella because the FDA collects this stuff and. That's their job is to track down foodborne outbreaks. So my students know how to do that <laughs> if they're interested in that kind of thing. So there's government jobs and there's private sector, but I, I, the private sector, I don't know as well. That was Conversations with Scientists. Today's guest was Dr. Stephen Salzberg, computational biologist at Johns Hopkins University and director of the Center for Computational Biology at Hopkins. The music pieces used for this media project are Funky Energetic Intro by Winnie the Mook and Acid Trumpet by Kevin McLeod, downloaded and licensed from filmmusic.io. And I just wanted to say, because there's confusion about these things sometimes, Johns Hopkins University didn't pay for this podcast and nobody paid to be in this podcast. This is independent journalism that I produce in my living room. I'm Vivian Marks. Thanks for listening.